Just asking, because first service was a lot fuller than normal. So I don't think I'm the only one that this is my favorite Sunday of the year. I love this. Um, I'm looking forward to what we're going to get into today. I want to give a little bit of an introduction before we get into 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we'll be spending our time. When I was a kid, um, my brother and my sister and I loved to watch The Twilight Zone. Which, by the way, if some of you out there, if you're like, Twilight Zone, that guy's old. Twilight Zone was old when I was a kid. And it was awesome. And uh, we, we loved him. And there was one that, that some of you will remember if, if you're familiar with the Twilight Zone. It followed the story of three astronauts that crash land on a desert planet. And they're moving about with very limited supplies. They haven't run into any civilization. They're running low on water. They're running low on food. They're exhausted. And so at one point, in order to try to figure out some way for them to be saved, they split up. And the three go in different directions. And then after a little while, the one astronaut who the the show has been following most of the time runs into one of the other astronauts who he'd split off with, but he finds him to be shot and dying. And before he can get any words out, the the surviving astronaut just assumes some kind of alien came upon him and, and killed him. But then when he ends up meeting up with the other astronaut that he split up with, he realizes that it's this third astronaut that did the killing. He had killed the other one, and now he was about to kill the main character. And before he does, he explains his reasoning. He says, we have limited supplies. The three of us can't survive on these supplies, so if I take the two of you out, at least I'll be able to survive long enough that hopefully I can run into civilization and somehow be saved. So he kills off his companion. He takes all the supplies, and then he looks around, and he sees sort of a hill of sand and says, all right, that's, that's my next move. I've got to go up there. As he climbs that hill of sand, he ends up getting to the top and looking down upon a gas station. He comes to realize that not only has he been on earth this entire time, but he was steps away from civilization. He was steps away from fresh food and water. He was steps away from being rescued. And his acts that he committed, although there was some level of understanding about them, They were horrific and that much more unnecessary. And it's striking because it's one of those where where you want to just, you you want to take the person and say, if you just saw a little bit more, if you just had the ability, you're walking around in this desert, all you could see was what was right in front of you. If you had the ability, if, if there was something that could lift you up and let you see just a little bit more, your perspective on the situation would have been absolutely different than what it was. And the horrible and evil acts that you committed never would have happened because perspective changes everything. And we're going to walk through what could kind of be in some ways an odd passage in the New Testament. And ultimately what we're going to see in this passage is something that it tells us about the unique perspective that we have as Christians and how that informs and empowers us to live our lives. But part of the reason why I wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to this is because this is also a passage in the New Testament that can be pretty troubling because it's about slaves. And immediately when we get to a passage about slaves, our minds are flooded with slavery in the United States and the horrific evil that that was. And so we have all of that baggage that comes. And then somewhat appropriately so, we also have the baggage of knowing that for different Christians during that time, Bible verses were used to support and explain 
the kind of slavery that happened in the United States. So when we reach a passage in the Bible about slavery, we can get very nervous to say, what are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with something that helped to perpetuate evil in our country and even evil in our churches? And in a sense, it's inescapable to say, yes, passages like the one we're about to go over were used, misused for that purpose. But part of what can help us in a passage like this, as we're looking at something that was written in the first century, not something that was written in the 1800s, but something that was written in the first century, is to make sure we understand some of the really significant differences between the kind of slavery that Paul was confronting in the first century and the kind of slavery that comes to our minds when we think of the history of the United States. And so to help us out, I'm going to put a quote up on the screen from Tim Keller from his book, The Reason for God. And I want to read this because this will help us get our bearings for what we're about to encounter. But he says, in the first century Roman Empire, when the New Testament was being written, there was not a great difference between slaves and the average free person. Slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like most everyone else and were not segregated from the rest of society in any way. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not unusually or were not usually poor. Also, slaves could accrue enough personal capital to buy themselves out. Most important of all, very few slaves were slaves for life. Most could reasonably hope to be manumitted within 10 or 15 years or by their late 30s. So I put this up here and I read this to you just for us to get our bearings. We have a lot of baggage when it comes to slavery, appropriately so, but it's important when we're reading Paul's words to recognize he's not talking about a kind of slavery like in our country that was based on kidnapping and based on racism. He was instead addressing the kind of slavery that, while certainly nobody desired to be a slave, was less in the category of being overtly unjust and more in the category of being overtly undesirable. Now, a quick word on this. So you might ask, all right, well, well, but what would Paul have said about slavery in our country? And I always get very, very nervous when people do this. And people are like, if Jesus was here, here's what he'd say about the president. Or if Paul was here, here's what he'd say about this thing. I, I get very nervous about our ability to do that. So I'm not going to tell you what Paul would have said, but I can tell you something that Paul did say just even earlier in this letter. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 10, he's talking about a list of different sins that bring condemnation to us as human beings. And one of the sins that he lists is slave trading. In the Old Testament, even though slavery existed within Israel, within Israel, the whole concept of kidnapping and trading and bartering in slaves was strictly forbidden. In fact, it carried with it the death penalty. So I say all this, this is still a passage that isn't the easiest for us, but I say all this because if you're reading this passage and you're automatically assuming some of the things that happen in our country, it's going to be hard for you to see what could we possibly get from this. But if instead we look at this passage that we're about to read and we say, here's the deal. Paul is speaking to people in clearly an undesirable situation. And in an undesirable situation, he's looking to give them perspective. Let me ask you a quick question. How many of you at some point in your life have been in an undesirable situation? (laughs) All right. Suddenly this has some carryover. Suddenly we can say, well, Paul is talking to people that are in inferior circumstances and talking about how perspective is going to shift, 
how they approach them. So with that said, we're going to go ahead and read the, the first part of this passage. The, the house rule that we'll get to is the whole idea that slaves and free, we all serve one master. And I'm going to read out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. You can follow along in your Bibles. In fact, if you have a Bible, even though we have it up on the screen, please do open it because I'll allude to different things. But starting in chapter uh, 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you lead us through this time. I pray that you keep us from missing the really significant and powerful message that you have for us in this passage. I pray that you lead all of us to respond to you as the one true master. In Jesus' name, amen. I already mentioned that in this passage, Paul is not only going to speak to slaves and say that slaves serve one master, he's going to speak to all of us and say, as Christians, we serve one master. This is the house rule that we live by as the people of God. And I already mentioned perspective. The whole idea of perspective is going to guide what we talk about. And the specific thing that Paul is going to bring out is that as Christians, we are able to accept inferior circumstances because we have a superior perspective. And in these two verses, in verse 1 and then in verse 2, in each of them, we're going to run across an aspect of this perspective that Paul is going to give us. And we'll look at the first one in verse 1. The first thing that Paul is going to tell us in verse 1 about our perspective as Christians is that we value mission over comfort. We have something that we're called to do, and that outranks our desire, and this is very significant to us as Americans, our desire, our quest for personal comfort. Verse 1 starts off and he says, all who are under the yoke of slavery. So we'll just pause there and say, all right, so this is the address. Now, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, back in chapter 5, Paul began a series of what some scholars will call a household code talking about how a family interacts in different roles and in different situations. He talked about it in terms of widows in chapter 5. Then in the passage last week, he talked about it in terms of elders. How's the church? There's appreciation for elders and there's also accountability. And then here, he's going to talk about it in terms of slaves and masters. And all of this, though, began with a couple of verses at the beginning of chapter 5. In fact, if you have an open Bible, you can look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. And Paul began this section that was going to cover widows, going to cover elders, and was going to cover slaves, all with a message about the church as a family. He said, Timothy, treat older men as fathers, treat older women as mothers, treat younger men as brothers, and treat younger women as sisters. The church is a family. And so then he starts playing that out. Because the church is a family, here's how we handle things with widows. Because the church is a family, here's how we handle things with the elders. Because the church is a family, here's how we handle things with slaves and masters. Now, here's one of the things that I just want to zero in on before we get to what he says to the slaves, and that's this. Just the fact that not only in this letter, but in several letters, Paul directly addresses the slaves who are part of the congregation shows something significant about Paul's view of their worth and their humanity. 
If Paul was viewing slaves simply as property, simply as things, simply as cattle, why would he include them in a section in his letter? He's giving the slaves who are part of the congregation the dignity of saying, in your place in life, in your circumstance, which clearly isn't a desirable circumstance, here's God's calling for you. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. And that word respect is the same Greek word honor that's been used throughout chapter 5 and chapter 6. Honor the widows who are truly in need at the beginning of chapter 5. Then in the middle of chapter 5, the elders who work hard are worthy of double honor. Now in chapter 6, verse 1, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect or full honor. Now just zero in on a very important word in verse 1, and that's the word consider. Slaves, consider your masters to be worthy of full respect. Quick question, do you think every master was actually worthy of full respect? No. We all, then now thankfully we, we don't live in a culture that has slavery, that's great. All of us have been under authority and are under authority. We've had teachers, we've had supervisors, we've had bosses, we have government officials, police officers, all of that. We have people in authority over us. How many of you have ever had somebody in authority over you that you did not deem to be worthy of your full respect? Guys are not wanting to raise hands because you're like, well, he's right over there. And so we all have had this experience. We all have had the experience with people who have a position of authority and they're not actually worthy of our full respect. Paul doesn't here say, slaves, all of your masters are worthy of full respect. They're all behaving in perfectly respectable ways. He says, slaves, consider them to be worthy of full respect. Act as if they're worthy of full respect and full honor. And even within this, this is something really significant because I think what we want to hear Paul say, especially because of our our American baggage with slavery, we want to hear Paul say, slaves, get free whatever way you can. Run away, rebel, we'll do whatever it takes to get out of this. And the fact is, there have been times that slaves have looked to do that. But I think something significant here is also Paul is recognizing that sometimes you're in an inferior circumstance and you have very little ability to change your circumstances. You have very little ability to change your station in life. And although slavery here in the first century relates, I think, a bit more to class than to race as we think of it today, this is still a situation. We live in the United States, and even in our country where there's a lot of upward mobility, there's a lot of ability to jump from lower class to middle class and from middle class to upper class, we still know that it can be very difficult and you can get stuck in a position where you can say, you know, because of my health, I don't have an ability to change significantly my life circumstances. Because of my job and because of my different financial requirements, I don't have a lot of ability to change my circumstances. But man, if I could, I just I daydream about the idea of getting out of our apartment and getting into a house. I daydream about the idea of being able to transfer to a prestigious university where I can get a great education. I dream about the day where I could get married and have kids. Or sadly, I dream of the day that I didn't have this marriage around me and I could just kind of be free. And I say that honestly, not even joking. There are probably some of you in here that are looking at your life and you're saying, the only way to happiness is if I somehow got out of this marriage. 
I want you to know something that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7. He addressed slavery in that passage also. But he addressed not only slavery, he addressed singleness and divorce and marriage. And what he basically said is, you know what? I'm not against you improving your situation, but don't base your hope on it. He said to single people, you know what? If you're single and you want to get married, it's not wrong to get married, but don't base your hope in getting married. And if you're married, that's where God has put you. Don't try to get out of it. And he says to slaves, if you're a slave and you can get your freedom, go for it. Who wouldn't? But if you don't have the ability to get your freedom, don't assume that you don't still have a calling and a role in the family of God. Slaves who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters to be worthy of full respect. Paul is saying, you know what? The Christian slaves, they should be the best ones. They should be the best workers. They should be the best servants. They should be the most respectful, the most trustworthy. They should be like Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, where he kept ascending to higher and higher places of responsibility because he was faithful with what he was entrusted in. Slaves, consider your masters worthy of full respect. And then he gives the reason. He says, so that God's name and our teaching." God's name is God's reputation. Our teaching is the gospel. So that God's reputation and so that the gospel message may not be slandered. Something very significant here he's saying to slaves. People who are in about the most undesirable circumstances of anybody in the first century. He's saying, slaves, here's what you need to realize. Your circumstance gives you a unique opportunity to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the only way you're going to be respectful under these circumstances, the only way that you're going to be a hard worker, the only way that you're going to be faithful in these difficult circumstances is if you have a hope that transcends these temporary circumstances. I mean, quick question. Um, You ever run into somebody that's on a really disproportionate power trip? It's like they have a little authority, they have a little power, but they seem to think that they are the king or queen of their domain. It can be almost comical in some ways. It's sad, but it can be almost funny where you think, you really think that you're a big deal here. Um, We're at the stage of life where we do kids' sports, and thankfully this year I I coached my son in soccer. It was a great year. We, We didn't have any problems. But I noticed something with our older son because he played baseball for a long time. And as they got older, there were more scuffles, there were more run-ins, there were more couch, uh, coaches and umpires on these power trips. I remember one time where there was an umpire, and it was funny because he was a young guy, so I don't know if he felt like he needed to just overdo it. Um, that diamond was his kingdom. He wanted everybody to know that he was in charge of what was going on there. And he left no doubt about it. He was rude. He was on a power trip. It was difficult to endure just sitting there and watching. And I'm not somebody that heckles a lot at at sporting events. In fact, I think the one time that I ever heckled at one of Matt's baseball games, I don't even know if it counts as a heckle, I yelled out, that's not the way baseball works because he didn't know the rules. (laughs) So my heckling is about facts. I'm like, I'm not offended. (laughs) I'm just telling you that's not how it works. But here's the deal. We dealt with all the parents, even though there was a little bit of muttering to ourselves during this time, all of us dealt with this umpire for those two hours on that diamond without major incident. We were able to handle it for that game. Why were we able to handle an uncomfortable situation like that without incident? Right? It was only two hours and it was only a baseball field. 
We knew that umpire wasn't going to follow us to our house and talk to us about how we needed to put the dishes away. Wasn't going to follow us around telling us how we should be driving. His authority began and ended with those two hours on that diamond. So you know what? It was sort of like if you want to be in charge, if you want to be on the power trip, have at it. We'll give it to you this time. We're going to have enough perspective to recognize that your authority runs out soon. Now, I know that our lives are a lot longer than two hours. But when you're talking about our lives in light of eternity, by the way, you ever tried to think about eternity? Ever tried? I I think that the hardest thing, for a while I thought the hardest thing to think about was the idea that with eternal life that there was no end to it. I'm like, I just can't do it. That's the hardest thing to think about. I was wrong. You know what the hardest thing to think about? The idea that God had no beginning. Noodle on that later today and see where you land. Eternal life. Just think about this idea. Eternal life. We've been promised eternal life. We have a God who has rescued us from sin and death, who has forgiven our sins, who's promised us eternal life. Eternal life versus 10 years of a bad boss. Eternal life versus even 40 years of a pretty difficult marriage. Eternal life versus whatever corrupt authorities or difficult authorities we run into. It suddenly becomes, from that perspective, sort of like enduring a bad umpire at a baseball game. You know why these slaves are going to be capable of being the hardest workers, of being respectful, of being good, and of taking the initiative? It's because they have the perspective to say, this person's authority runs out. And even though they're working for an earthly master, they recognize they're not really working for an earthly master. They're working for their one true heavenly master. And by the way, let me tell you something about this heavenly master. This heavenly master laid down his life for them. This heavenly master, according to Psalm 23, leads them beside quiet waters, takes care of their soul, gives them rest, forgives all their sins, gives them hope, empowers them for their life ahead of them. Suddenly, these slaves can be in a situation where they can say, you know what, our calling on life right now, just like every other member of the church, is to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have the unique opportunity to do that in a way that others would look at us and say, why do you have so much hope? Why do you have so much joy? Why are you able to handle these difficult circumstances? It's because they have a perspective and a hope that goes beyond this world. So Paul says, first of all, As Christians, we're able to handle inferior circumstances because of our superior perspective, because our perspective is that our mission is even more important than our temporary comfort. But on verse two, he moves on to a second thing that he's going to tell us, perspective number two. And perspective number two is that our identity is more significant than our role. Verse two, after he's kind of talked broadly about slavery, verse two, he says, those who have believing masters... So he says, all right, now I'm going to talk about a more unique situation. you got a slave who's a Christian, and the master is a Christian. And just the fact that Paul talks about this without immediately saying the masters need to let the slaves be free kind of shows that Paul is looking at this less as an overtly unjust situation and more as just an undesirable situation. You don't want to be in that position. You don't want to be of a lower class. You don't want to be a slave. You don't want to be a servant. That's fine. But he doesn't see it as something that ultimately needs to be immediately rectified. He sees there being a place. We've got the Christian master and the Christian slave. 
and maybe not terribly different than to, that today, you'd have the Christian worker and the Christian boss. You have the Christian CEO and the Christian entry-level worker. It says, all right, some of you, those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. I'm going to start to say a phrase. I want you to finish it. Familiarity breeds contempt. That seems to be what Paul is getting at here. The idea doesn't seem to be, and by the way, the word disrespect that he uses there, it's the same word that he uses in chapter 4, verse 12, when he's telling Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Don't let anyone disrespect you in that way. He's saying, all right, slaves, there's going to be the temptation to disrespect your masters. And this seems to be based less on the idea that the slaves would say, it's unjust even to have us as slaves, so we disrespect you. And more towards the idea that they say, we're Christians and they're Christians We're equal. We all know that we're equal. And so now familiarity is breeding contempt. Now I can put my feet up. Now I can rest. Now I can kind of talk back and give as good as I get. And after all, what are they going to do? I'm a brother in Christ. I'm a sister in Christ. What are they going to do? Some of you, especially if you're a supervisor, if you own your own business, you probably have experienced some of this. Where you've had employees who are close to you, who are maybe even family members, or you have employees that are Christians, and you've started to get the attitude that they're thinking, what are you going to do to me? You're going to fire me? You're really going to do that? You're really going to just let me go? There seems to be an aspect where where familiarity was breeding contempt, and Paul doesn't want to have that happen. He's already said, all right, be the best workers, work to benefit them. In fact, look at what he says at the second half of verse two. He says, instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers. Saying, here's the deal. You know what? When you've got a non-Christian master, serve them faithfully so that the gospel and your eternal perspective is put on display. He's saying, if you've got a believer who's your master, serve all the more because the person benefiting from your work is a brother or a sister in Christ, somebody that you're sharing life with. Don't you want to benefit them all the more? And then there's this last phrase that he says. Actually, I want to highlight for us because it's a little bit of a tricky one. So I'll start back at the beginning of this sentence. He says, instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. And you can see I have the word welfare highlighted up here. The reason this is tricky is because it's translated different ways. The, The Greek is a bit ambiguous about how it should be. The way that the NIV translates it here basically seems to say this. All right, slaves, you work hard to benefit your masters because they're fellow believers. And as fellow believers, your masters are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Which seems like this is a really neat idea here. What he's talking about here is, all right, as slaves, you're devoted to their welfare. And as masters, they're devoted to your welfare. You have different places, different stations, different roles in life but you're both acting with grace and kindness towards one another. The problem is that I don't think this is probably the way that this verse should be translated. I think it probably should be translated more like the English Standard Version translates it, which makes it say this. Rather, they, slaves, must serve all the better since those who benefit, and there's the whole idea of welfare, those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So in the NIV, it has it saying, all right, slaves are serving masters and masters are helping their slaves. Everybody's working together here. That probably isn't the best way for it to be translated. The best way for it to be translated probably is slaves are working hard to benefit their beloved believing masters. 
which in a way is a little bit annoying because I wish that it said what the NIV has it say. That sounds a lot better. That preaches a lot better. I'd love to be able to talk about the whole idea of, you know what, slaves and masters, ultimately what Paul says is they answer to the same master, but I don't think that that's what he says here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. But I've got good news for you. While it's not what he says here, it is exactly what he says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Slaves and masters are both equal in the family of God. Slaves and masters on Sundays at church gatherings are sitting next to each other as the church is functioning. Slaves and masters, last week we took communion together as a church family, and communion is one of the beautiful, there's so many beautiful things that communion symbolizes, but one of the powerful things that, that it symbolizes is the oneness of the body of Christ. And just think about this, after the master is taking that bread and taking his bite, you know who he's passing the bread to? His slave. After he takes the cup, he's passing it to his slave. They're sitting together as the church family as equals. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul talks about communion, almost certainly the setting is that he's saying wrong things are happening with regard to communion because the rich are showing up and the poor are coming late. And you know why the poor were probably coming late? Because they were slaves whose masters didn't let them get there on time. And Paul says in a passage all about communion, you know what the main command in that passage is? Wait for one another. You're one church family. You're one body. Familiarity can breed contempt. But what I want you to remember is that as slave and master, you both have one master. You may be functioning in different roles here, but you're on an equal playing field before the Lord. When I was in college, um, after my sophomore year of college, I got hired on for the summer for my church to be an intern to be an intern with the youth. And an intern with the youth meant that I did some things with the kids, with the junior hires, with the high schoolers, and with the college group. And I spent some time in each of those settings. Um, so between the kids, the junior hires, the high schoolers, and the college students, I want you to guess which was the hardest group to lead for me. All right, I heard a bunch of you say it. It was the college students. And it's not because the college students were bad. It was because the college students were my what? They were my peers. I can get in with the kids. I mean, I was like 19 years old, but that seemed like 100 years old to the kids. They're like, wow, look how old he is. We should listen to him. You know, junior hires and high schoolers, they're like, ah, college students are kind of cool, so they listen a little bit more. When I was with the college students, not only was I with my peers, but I'd grown up at this church. I was really with all my friends. These were the people I'd sit around with on Friday nights. These were the people I'd go see movies with. These were, these were the guys I was accountable to and accountable with, where we'd pray for one another. These were the people that we'd sit around, you know, the, the bonfire roasting marshmallows. These were the people I hung up, out with. These were my friends. And it was daunting to think about serving in the role, role of leading my friends. And at the same time, there was something really powerful about both them and about me in being in that setting. And the reason is this, when I was up there leading, I had a lot of motivation not to be a jerk just because I was in charge. I had a lot of motivation to be a servant leader and to be humble and to lead graciously. You know why? 
because on Friday night, I was going to be sitting around with all these people, and I didn't want our friendship ruined because of the way that I led. And you know that cuts both ways, right? There was a lot of motivation when I was leading for the different students in the college group not to be heckling me, not to be whispering, not to be disrespecting, not to be somehow undercutting what I was doing. You know why? Because on Friday night, we were all going to be hanging out together. We were all going to be friends. We were all going to be equals. And it was going to be awkward if I mistreated them or if they mistreated me. There was something powerful about the accountability of realizing during this one hour in college group, I'm the leader and they're under my leadership. But man, that's one hour. That's a role. That's not our identity. And ultimately, what they were looking at when I was up there leading them on the college group nights was not Dan the intern. They were just looking at Dan the guy, Dan the friend, the person that they knew. Paul is saying something very powerful here. He's saying, you know what? Slave and master should be able to sit next to each other and take communion in good conscience with each other. Where the master's looking at the slave and saying, I'm looking to be right, I'm looking to be fair, I'm looking to treat you well. And the slave is looking at the master and saying, I'm not looking to slack off, I'm looking to do all the work that you tell me to do, and I'm looking to do it faithfully. That they in good conscience could look at one another without discomfort, even though during the week they're functioning in different roles. That means within this church family, the CEO and the entry-level workers should be able to sit together in our church services and take communion right next to one another. Without the entry-level worker talking about the corruption or the greed of the CEO, and without the CEO complaining about the ineptness of the entry-level workers. In fact, just think about this for a second. Um, A CEO could come to a church service and could end up coming to a church where one of those entry-level workers is his elder. I don't have any proof that this happened, but just imagine this scenario for a minute. Imagine if in the early church, a slave was an elder. What would this have been like for a master to recognize the idea, I'm in charge, I'm in authority during the week. When I show up at the church services, my slave is somebody that I'm answering to. My slave is somebody who I'm responsible to follow their lead. And Paul seems to see no problem with this being something that happens because there's a difference between role and identity. Your role is a place that God has put you. Your role is something that you look to fulfill. You look to be faithful in where God has put you. And sometimes those circumstances are things that we really, really like. And sometimes those circumstances are really, really difficult. And Paul is looking at us and saying, all right, here's the deal. Sometimes you're going to be in a circumstance where your health is not good. And you think that the only way for a full life is to get healthy, but God's not going to answer that prayer. And other times you're going to look at your circumstances and say, only when I get to a point that I'm not living paycheck to paycheck can I be living a full and healthy life. And God's not necessarily going to answer that prayer. And you might say, I've got to get married. And God doesn't give you a spouse. And you've got to say, I've got to get out of this marriage. And God says, you need to stay. We can constantly be in situations, bad bosses, bad authorities, bad presidents. And we can have perspective in all of those because we recognize that there is an eternal God who we are all answerable to. And thank God that this master is the servant master who laid down his life for his sheep. As Christians, we get to deal with and even accept these temporary inferior circumstances because we have a superior perspective. And here's what I wanna invite you to do. In a moment, the band is gonna come back out and we're gonna get to respond in song. 
And in fact, I'll tell you a little bit, the song that we're responding in has a lot to do with us bringing ourselves before God. Hebrews 4 talks about the whole idea that when we approach God, we get to approach God with boldness, which basically means we approach God based on the idea that we belong in his presence. We belong in his presence, not because of anything that we've done, but because the Holy Spirit indwells each one of us. And no CEO who's a Christian has more of the Holy Spirit than any entry-level worker who's a Christian. No man has more of the Holy Spirit than any Christian woman has the Holy Spirit. No master has more of the Holy Spirit than any slave has the Holy Spirit. No CEO has their sins forgiven in a more full way than the entry-level worker. We all approach God based on the fact that we have been rescued by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and promised eternal life by the God who deeply loves us. And so during this song, we get to bring ourselves to God in that way. And during the song, we're also gonna have some elders and pastors on the sides so that during the song, any of you wants to come forward for prayer, you can do that. And let me just give you a couple suggestions of what might lead you to wanna come forward for prayer. You might want to come forward for prayer because you recognize that right now you are in an inferior circumstance. You're wishing and you're hoping and you're praying for your circumstances to change and you're not sure what God's going to do with it and you need to embrace the idea that God wants you to focus more on mission than on comfort and more on identity than on role. You also might need to come forward and ask for prayer because in this message, you've listened to it and you've realized that you're a person who is in authority and you have not been acting right to the people under your care. And so you need to come forward for repentance. You need to come forward to deal with that. Or maybe even just you need to come forward because you're recognizing, you know, we are a church family and I'm in open conflict with somebody else, maybe even somebody else in this room. And I need to figure out what I need to do to make it right. As believers, we have the power from God to transcend our inferior circumstances because of the perspective that he gives us and the hope that he gives us. So I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to pray for us as we prepare to respond in worship. Father, thank you so much for the grace that you've poured out for us in Jesus. Thank you so much for your kindness and goodness. Father, we pray that you lead us to shine the light of Jesus where we are. We pray that you lead us to accept the circumstances that you've given us even when we grade against them. We pray that you give us grace to treat with respect people that don't necessarily deserve that respect. And Father, I pray that you bring us a greater level of unity across race, across class, across socioeconomic place in life. I pray that you bring us the kind of unity that shines the light of the gospel to the people around us. Receive our worship now. Receive this offering that we give to you and bring healing and help to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.